0: Smile, God loves you. Should we put that on a bumper sticker and emblazon that on all of our cars this morning? Does God love everyone equally and the same? John fourteen twenty three. Jesus in the upper room with his disciples said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. We will disclose ourselves to him. Can you say this morning, Jesus loves me? Does that old children's song mean anything to you today? The stable, constant bedrock of God's great love for us in Christ forms the basis of a flourishing life. You say, Eric, what is the grist? What are the elements of a stable life of flourishing and following Jesus? At its core is an understanding, an apprehension, an appreciation, and an appropriation of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. But God's love for us is both a comfort as well as a challenge if the truth be told and since it's just us kids here this morning some of us aren't feeling the love of God for us by the way you know our feelings lie to us and we always have to send them to the reformatory school of the word of God but that's true I get up and start to wax on about the love of God in Christ. And some of you might say to me, Eric, look at my life. You call this the love of God? There is something wondrously attractive yet about the love that God has for his children. Today, we come to a passage to master. Today, we come to a passage to memorize. And I'm just like you. I have trouble memorizing. Uh, Lisa Cornell, Josh McCain, and I have been working on this passage. And it's a wonderful passage to work on. Just to go to sleep trying to remember the verses that you memorize and and just ticking through them. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. Better than memorizing it, acting as though it were so because it is true. So that's where we are this morning. And I want to read to you these splendid verses. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, will he not with him graciously give us all things? or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sakes, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. Now this extraordinary chapter, Romans chapter 8, starts with an affirmation of no condemnation. There is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. It ends with an affirmation of no separation. There is no separation from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And between those two glorious poles, a rich treasure trove of truth to appropriate is revealed. Did you notice with me the six questions in these verses that I had the privilege of reading to you? He stops after the majesty of Romans 8, 1 through 30, and he he just stops. He says, what then shall we say to all these things? It is, if God is for us, who can be against us? Question one. And question two. Question three is next. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Question four. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Question five, verse 34. Who is to condemn? Question six. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he goes through the series. Shall tribulation separate us or distress or persecution or famine separate us or nakedness or danger or sword separate us of course begging the rhetorical question's answer nothing absolutely nothing now some have argued that Romans chapter 8 and verse 32 that verse is a summary of Romans chapter 1 2 3 4 and 5 and then they have argued that Romans chapter 8 and verse 33 is a summary of Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8. So here we come to a summing point, kind of a completion of a section of the book. We are about ready to wade into the glory of Romans 9, 10, and 11 before the wonder of Romans 12 through 16 in the next two sections in the book. But here we are this morning. I want to go three different directions. First, I want to talk about the major thesis that's here. Eric, give me the bottom line. Just give it to me in one sentence. That's all I want. I will. That's point one. If you can summarize the gospel in a statement, what would it be? Secondly, I want to, with you, notice how God's love actually stirs up some dilemmas we have ringing affirmations of God's love and face the dilemma of life in a broken world and our response to it. And it creates tension. How do we resolve it? Which side do we land on? And finally, why is it that God's love provides the footings for a stable life? In case you haven't noticed recently, we are not the most stable folk in Western culture. We are not doing as well as we could do if our lives were centered on one who has given to us, as Peter describes, all that we need for life and godliness. An anchor, a bedrock, a life founded upon Jesus Christ our Lord and what he said. So first, the summing conclusion. What is the conclusion? Notice it's the answer to this rhetorical question. What then shall we say to these things? What things? Well, everything he said in the book, but in particular, 8.1 to 8.30. What shall we say to these things? Notice this affirmation. If God is for us, who can be against us? The summing conclusion is this. God is for his children. When Adam left the garden, justly so, we were captured with a sense that we were estranged from God. We were separated from God, even as Paul describes in Ephesians 2, we were God's enemy. Rather than being an intimate with God, we were a rebel against God. And so in his presence... Uh, we felt less than. Rather than being attracted to him, we were up- repulsed from him, yet being made in his image, finding an echo in our spirit of a desire to relate to him. Jacob said in Genesis forty-two thirty-six, all things are against me. And along the way in a broken world, we can feel like, man, this is an uphill climb. There's a lot that's working against me. And what trumps all of those feelings is a notion that, hey, I, I, I have a sense that God is against me. Now, the glory of the good news about Jesus is Jesus Christ has changed our status with God. Once he was against us, but he took all that brought us to be against him in our sin, and he laid it on Jesus at the cross. And so it having been resolved at the cross, our sin and our guilt paid for through the death of Jesus Christ. He now swings the door open and invites us into his family. And in repenting of our sin and coming to place our faith in Jesus Christ, we come to experience the daughtership of God, the sonship of God. Rather than being God's enemy, we are an intimate with God. Or as Job says in that delicate, sweet phrase, the friendship of God hovers around my tent. I love that line. Now, we have been taken from being God's enemy by the grace of God and been brought in to be his intimate friend through the death of Jesus Christ. Through his resurrection, he has brought us, begotten us, birthed us, into the hope of eternal life. What a quintessential expression of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son in order that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. You say, Eric, give me a summing synthesis of the good news about Jesus. Just in a few words, how would you characterize the whole ball of wax? How about this? God is for us. And he proved that in Jesus. You can get a lot of mileage in life and in death out of this notion. God is for us. Philip Melanchthon, Martin Luther's crack assistant who served him so ably during the Reformation. As he was dying, they got close to Melanchthon and they found him Repeating this verse, and on his lips it was, If God be for us, who can be against us? If God be for us, who can? That's a great way to live, and that's a great way to die because it is true, and it's the glory of God's love for us. Now, there are two different ways that God's love for us expresses itself as described in this passage. Number one, God will allow nothing to condemn us. Look at verses 33 and 34, and remember that verse 1 starts with, there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. The verse does not say there is no condemnation for humanity. No, it says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who have through repentance and faith been brought by the grace of God into the family of God. For us, attributable to God's mercy, what keeps us from what we do deserve, attributable to God's grace, what gives us what we don't deserve, we, though enemies and sinful, have been brought in and forgiven. And there is no condemnation. Who shall bring a charge against the elect? This is a legal, technical term. He reaches into the basket of words around the prosecutor's office in the first century. And if they were going to draw up what we would call an indictment, it's this word. It's charges against a person. And so the question, two questions are asked side by side. Um, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies It is God who declares righteous. And since in Christ we have been declared righteous, the verdict is already in. So the condemnation is not applicable to us. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. You see, our condemnation was turned back in the sufficient death of Jesus Christ, in his atoning death, in his shed blood. Our condemnation was swallowed up in the victory of the cross. And now God declares us righteous as we believe in Jesus Christ. It's the great gift of the gospel. You say, Eric, summarize it. It's like this. God is for us. What Now, are there 7 billion of us on the globe? Do you know how many on the globe are unaware and unconvinced that God is for us? There's one kind of living that happens when you live with the conviction that God is for us. And there's another kind of living that happens when you live without that conviction. Are you living with that conviction? I invite you to that conviction this morning. God could not love you more. Accusations come. They come from ourselves. Our self-talk isn't very good. We're always accusing ourselves. We're less than. We're not as good. We're not making the mark. By the way, before God's holiness, all of that is true. But notwithstanding that truth, God has declared us righteous in Christ. What God is after is not perfection, but joyful submission and obedience and a receipt of the gift of righteousness offered in Jesus Christ. But also, we're, we're, we're accused. You know what? Paul said, who is going to bring a charge against God's elect? Who would dare do that? George Whitfield was a colonial preacher that stirred up a storm. First, he had a booming voice. It was said that he could stand without amplification before a crowd of 25,000 and be heard. We just God gave him quite a set of pipes. And he uh, was uh, not appreciated by some, so they wouldn't let him preach in his churches. So he just went out in the fields and preached. He was from England. He came to America. He stirred up criticism. That happens. And in one super moment of criticism for him, criticism was raining down upon him. And somebody asked him for a response. Here was his response. I am perfectly willing to wait until the judgment day for the clearing up of my character. When I am dead, I desire no other epitaph than this. Here lies George Whitfield. What kind of man he was, the great day will discover. And on the great day, every hidden thing will be made known. Everything unsaid, whispered quietly, will be said out loud. And the dead, small, and great will stand before the living God. But for the follower of Jesus Christ, the verdict is already in. The judge of all the earth has said, you are mine and I declare you righteous. Not because we are righteous, our self-righteousness won't take us anywhere but he gave us the gracious gift of righteousness in the person of his son. And faith's arms just receives from God this free gift of righteousness. And we are made right with God and stand before him right. God is a judge. What does an accusation mean before a judge who's already declared us righteous? But it even gets better in this passage. Uh, we have an advocate before the judge, Jesus Christ the righteous. Who shall bring charge against the elect? It is Christ Jesus who has died. Moreover, he was raised from the dead. Moreover, he, he went to the right hand of God who is interceding for us. And as he pleads before the Father for our cause, He is waving his hands and gesturing with nail-scarred hands reminding the Father of what it costs to bring us into his family. God will allow nothing to condemn us. Many of us carry around guilt that ought long ago to have been resolved when Jesus said, it is finished. And beginning with me, we all have pasts, that are imperfect. Now, are we going to leave them at the foot of the cross? Are we going to drag them around as an anvil to have episodic refreshments of our guilt and go in some dark hole spiritually? All to let that burn into our conscience. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is Christ Jesus who has died, and right before he gave up his spirit, he said, it is finished. And if it's finished with God, it can be finished with us. Do you realize how enlivening it was for Jesus to say to the woman at the well, I'm I'm sorry, not the woman at the well, the woman taken in adultery in John chapter 8. She's thrown down. Hey, she was taken in adultery. Here is a guilty, sinful woman. He was without sin, cast the first stone. They start wandering away. There's nobody there. Then Jesus starts dealing with her. Woman, where are your accusers? They're all gone. They've gone away. Here's what he said to her. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Can you imagine how enlivening it was for that woman to hear from Jesus, neither do I condemn you. Do you need to hear from Jesus? Neither do I condemn you. I need to hear that. And I'll tell you, The more I ponder it, the sweeter the sound of those words are to my heart. God will allow nothing to condemn us. Secondly, God will allow nothing that severs us from his love. Look at verses 38 and 39. Now, look at how 38 starts. It's fascinating. For I am sure. There's no hesitation in this affirmation by Paul. He asserts it in the strongest of terms. I'm sure of this. He doesn't say, you know what, I'm, I'm just not actually sure how this is going to turn out. Or I'm a little iffy here, a little weak in the knees. No, he says, I am sure. Now, he's, he's already sent signals before. In verse 28, what did he say? And we know, in verse 18, for I consider. 18, I consider. 28, I know. 38, for I am Sure. Now there's four couplets and two singles in what follows. I am sure that these will not separate us from the love of God. Death nor life. Now doesn't that just cover all the bases? <laughs> nothing in life and nothing in death will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I got a note last night after I got home from being gone. A friend's wife died. And uh, she had a will and he had a will. I've never had this before, but she put in her will that I'm supposed to do her funeral. (laughs) And he wanted to let me know that. And he opened the will and looked at it. And uh, he uh, is struggling with uh, the loss but struggling in hope because she knew the Lord and he knows the Lord. Um, Death. Not even death can sever us from God's love. Angels are rulers. So Eric, what about all the authorities in the world? Governmental authorities. uh, This is what they can do, their power. Uh, Not only governmental authorities, why you have... um, Principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age. You know, the, 1 John 5, 21, the whole world lies in the hands of the evil one. There's evil out there. There is no evil in this world or no authority in this world that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Don't forget what the, Jesus said. He said, all this is after the resurrection, all power and authority has been given to me. This has a way of amping back on Fear. And raising the quotient of trust. Things present. Eric, you won't believe what I'm going through right now. And because of what I'm going through right now, it makes me afraid of the future. Things present are things to come. I, here's, the, here's the deal. Nothing you are presently facing will take you away from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Amen. But it gets better. Nothing that you will face in the future will take you away from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Wow, that's pretty amazing. Height nor depth, no astral powers or formations ever going to be against you. The demons of hell, wherever it is, nothing that exists in all of the created order will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus They are impotent to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This is a certain conviction that the follower of Jesus has and lives with. John Stott said, nothing seems stable in our world any longer. Insecurity is written across all human experience. Christian people are not guaranteed immunity to temptation, tribulation, or tragedy. But we are promised victory over them. God's pledge is not that suffering will never afflict us but his pledge is that suffering will never separate us from his love end of quote I thought of that old song this week uh, old gospel song Jesus loves even me I am so glad that our father in heaven tells of his love in the book he has given wonderful things in the Bible I see this is the dearest that Jesus loves me Oh, if there's only one song I can sing. When in his beauty I see the great king, this shall my song in eternity be. Oh, what a wonder that Jesus loves me. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. me. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Notice the last line. Jesus loves even me. Can you sing that with appreciation? Oh, the love of God for us in Christ. It's great to be a child of God. He is for his own. But what is true, it won't prove that great for those who are separated from God because they are not interested in him or knowing him. And that's why my invitation to you this morning is to run to Jesus Christ where there is safety, where there is affection, where there is forgiveness, and where there is grace. Oh, the wonder of knowing Jesus Christ as Savior. Be reconciled to him. Now, secondly, what's the hard part about saying, yes, Jesus loves me? Increasingly, we are a culture driven by our feelings. How you doing today? Well, you know, we measure our feelings. I don't feel too good about today. It's some subjective, visceral, gut-level feel. Consider two matters related to the hard part of saying, yes, Jesus loves me. Number one, threats abound to our perception of Christ's love. Mount you're up there saying, Jesus loves me. I'll tell you what, I'm down here seated, and whatever that is, I'm not feeling that. I'm not feeling that. Our feelings of being loved by God are challenged by hardship. Notice verse 35. There's a pretty substantial list here. Some argue this is Paul's biography and ministry. Shall tribulation, shall distress, shall persecution, shall famine, nakedness, danger of the sword, separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? You see, those are not forums wherein we feel loved by God. In the midst of that, our first impression is not, oh, how much God must love me. I mean, take the final word, sword, danger, sword. It was a threat of persecution that could lead to martyrdom. I remember when ISIS killed those group of Jesus followers in Libya. That's, that's what I understood about the news story. They wrapped them, of course, in orange jumpsuits to uh, protest the Gitmo prisoners and uh, took them out on the beach and with a sword cut off their heads. And I thought of them this week. And I thought of, and they they took a picture and broadcast it, you know, made some magazines and that. Um, I thought of what their last thoughts must have been. But is not it true? Reasoning from this passage That their last thoughts that are true could have been, I don't care what you do with my head. You can sever my head, but you will not sever me away from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. It's untouchable. It's a reality that is immutable. It doesn't change. It is constant. The love of Christ is not dependent upon things going well according to to us which means you may be really facing a difficult thing and at the self same time be experiencing the love of God in a way that's super profound in fact this is what's counterintuitive some of the times when we've become the most convinced of the love of God have been through the most distressing things that we've ever faced but that's how God works The child of God could not be more loved going through verse 35's descriptions. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. Shall these separate us from the love of God? No, not at all. Even death. On our dying bed. When all around our soul gives way. One thing thing that's not going to give way is the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. Now the second thing to consider that makes this concept hard is that in this life the people of God will face affliction but we shall conquer. Look at verses 36 and 37. The tension is trying to reconcile affliction with the love of God because going in we don't have a category for both affliction and the love of God as a simultaneous experience. For too many of us, it's either affliction or the love of God. And when we would say things are going okay, oh yeah, God really loves me. And affliction, oh no, man, I, you know, I'm not experiencing God's love. But notice how that wasn't an issue for the Apostle Paul. We draw a false conclusion in affliction. We say to ourselves... This represents God's displeasure. This represents God being against me. God couldn't love me because look how my life is. Is affliction compatible with the love of God? According to Paul, it absolutely is. I'm going with God's book. Now, there are two issues for us. Number one, this is the obvious point. We don't have a category for affliction and the love of God. Secondly, we don't envision our following of Jesus to bring persecution and struggle. If you look at verse 36, you can say to yourself, Eric, how does verse 36 fit in here? Everything else is real nice and tidy. And then he throws in this verse. It seems like a non sequitur, something that doesn't relate. As it is written, for your sakes we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He reaches back in Psalm 44 and he picks out one verse. What is he saying? He's saying, what were you thinking when you came to follow Jesus? They crucified him. The world hates our Lord, the prince of life, the prince of hope, the sacrificial lamb. And if they put him to death, why would we think that they were going to always treat us super nice? No, he says, For your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is part and parcel of this glorious journey following Jesus Christ. You say, Eric, that's all we're... like. But notice, he uses a really cool word in verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. You say, Eric, it'd be enough for me if I was a conqueror. No, we are more than conquerors. Or you, you could actually translate this. Word. We are super conquerors. I mean, how much conquering do we want? I mean, how high do we have to get? I mean, isn't it enough to conquer? No, we're more than that. We're super conquerors. How? Through him who loved us. That the love of God brings us to conquer this stuff that he's talking about. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or the sword. Super conquerors. What securities are ours and belong to us in the midst of affliction? And all of those securities are stored in the warehouse that is infinite and everlasting of the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, that nothing can separate us from. Well, finally then, the love of Christ is our unshakable foundation of life and hope. How can we maintain life? How can we maintain hope? How can we maintain a positive perspective? Look at verse 32. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, all of his children. It may very well have been that the lyricist, the Russian man who wrote How Great Thou Art up in the Carpathian Mountains looking over a beautiful vista in Romania... It very well may be that he was meditating on Romans 8.32 when he wrote that lyric from How Great Thou Art. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. What's his response? Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. John 15, 13. Greater love is no man than this, and a man lay down his life for his friend. Nothing able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Chapter 8 ends on top of a mountain with a great assertion, looking over a beautiful vista in life. And written all over the canvas of that glorious horizon is this nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus they were two little girls in the early part of the 18th century they were sisters and they were buddies and they loved their mom their dad was a lawyer They lived on Constitution Island in the Hudson River just across from West Point. But they faced the awful tragedy and life dream-busting experience of their mother dying when they were young girls. And Anna Warner and her sister Susan had to try to figure out how they were going to live to add insult to injury in 1837 and the financial panic, their lawyer father lost his fortune. And they would live out their days in destitution, groveling out an existence. Susan, a writer. Anna, a lyricist. It's interesting. Postmodern feminists love to celebrate Susan Werner as a novelist, a female who was published in the mid-19th century with all those men. She published hers. I don't think any of us ever... It's full of Jonathan Edwards' theology. It's a wide, wide world. It's a fascinating book. They wrote a story together. And the story was is, went into a novel called Say and Seal. And as often were the stories... The young faced tragic things because that was their story. So little Johnny Fox was a young man who was dying in the story. And Johnny Fox had his Sunday school teacher visit him. And whenever he visited him, he would take him in his arms, and as they recorded in the story, he would sing a song. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. For the Bible tells me so. That was a song that Anna wrote into that text. That as the book began to be read, it was said, this song must be sung. And taught to our children. And hence we have Jesus loves me. Well, how did Amy and Susan get on through such devastation? They got on standing on the certain foundation of the enduring love of God in Jesus Christ. They might be the only two civilians who received full military honor in their burial in the West Point Cemetery because for 40 years they hosted Bible studies for then it was all men who were there at the academy God be praised for pace setting example lives who lay hold of what's true and stand right there knowing Jesus loves them face life in a broken world as it actually is and keep going looking forward to all that lies ahead. Praise be to God for the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Heavenly Father, we bless your name for being such a God. All we've done is mess everything up in our relationship with you with our sin. And all you have done is notwithstanding our sin, poured your love out on us in such infinite measure in the person of your son Jesus that you've changed our lives and given us a future and a hope and we're thrilled to sing back to you with a grateful heart what your love means to us we're going to do that right now Father minister to us for those who are going through trouble tribulation distress persecution famine nakedness, danger, the sword, remind us what's true. Nothing, nothing, nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand, let's sing.